A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. So Isabel, the Royal Unions have announced more strikes and this time they've timed them with the Labour Party conference, which is happening at the end of September. Is there a message here they're trying to send? I think there's a challenge that they're setting out for Keir Starmer, which doesn't sort of take a strategic genius working within the leader of the opposition's office to, to work out what they're up to, which is how many front benches are you going to get joining picket lines? How is that going to be enforced when Keir Starmer is trying to have his big moments presenting himself to to the country, to the party as Britain's next prime minister, or so he hopes. And uh, at last year's Labour conference, obviously, we're still recovering from the resignation of Andy MacDonald at that conference last autumn. Keir Starmer hoped that last year's conference where Andy MacDonald resigned and he had people heckling him from the floor, all of those things were sort of what he'd hoped for. He hoped for somebody from the left to kick up a fuss. He'd hoped to have a sort of Neil Kinnock moment where he could face down some of the uh, the hard left within his party during his speech. He hasn't hoped for that kind of moment this time round this year because this year he wants to be talking about who he is, about Labour's proposals to be a party of government. I mean, he spent the past few months sort of framing various issues around Brexit and so on. And so to have a sort of, you know, should you be on a picket line, should you give an interview about being on a picket line argument is going to be a real pain for him and is going to open up the question again about his judgment on issuing the instruction two front benches that they shouldn't be on picket lines because that has that has really sort of created the row here had he sort of not chosen to join picket lines himself had a sort of a reasonably firm line on the strikes then you would have probably still had a lot of carping from you know TUC from Sharon Graham and so on but you wouldn't have had these regular confrontations where all of us are, are ringing up Labour saying what action is going to be taken against Lisa Nandy because she's the latest person to join a picket line and so yes it is strikes are always designed to be inconvenient to highlight what what happens when these essential workers go missing but these are designed to be inconvenient in a slightly different way i think there's a big question about whether people adopt the sam tarry model of being on a picket line or the lisa nandy model of being on a picket line if you see what i mean i think i think for keir starmer if it's a bunch of still photographs of basically or basically various labor politicians on picket lines they're not saying anything they're just present that is one thing if they choose to do a sam tarry and give lots of media interviews highlighting that and saying that Labour should be more clearly on their side, then I think that is difficult. I also think there is a particular problem given the the, the kind of semi-nationalised state of the railways at the moment, because essentially anyone who's joining a picket line is, is, is essentially indicating a position that the Labour government would take on what is, for all intents and purposes, a public sector pay dispute, which I think makes it very different from the, the Lisa Nandy open reach strike. I think the other challenge for Labour is obviously if the unions start coordinating strike action to the extent where it becomes kind of really clearly inconvenient, where do they stand? But I also think that given all of the problems coming down the track, the problems in Keir Starmer's entry 
are dwarfed by those that, by those that will be in the entree of the new prime minister. So I think I think we should obviously that he would not choose to have not just for his personal convenience, but you would not choose to have a rail strike on the last day of Labour conference. But I think we shouldn't blow out of proportion how big it is in the whole panoply of events that we are going to see in the first hundred days of the new prime minister. Mm-hmm. And. Isabel, can we expect similar things to happen during the Conservative Party conference happening a week later? Or is this a particularly targeted message at Labour, considering, as you say, they are meant to be the party of the working class? I mean, I think there is a a desire to show up Keir Starmer and to, to make him uncomfortable and to try to pressure him into supporting this strike action or, or, or that strike action. But We've still got talk of, of a general strike. We, we've got this enough is enough group and so on. So ultimately, a lot of these unions want to make life uncomfortable for the government as well, particularly with their public sector strikes. And as we move into strikes from workers who are employed by the NHS, for instance, the focus is going to be less on, I think, the Labour Party and more on how ministers are or aren't getting involved and the various arguments they're deploying for not getting involved. James, the campaigner Gina Miller recently has said that it would be irresponsible to have this kind of two-week recess during party conference season. Is that going to go anywhere? It does seem like the summer recess has been very long, considering the context of the country's economic outlook. So can we expect that party recess to be cancelled, or is party conference season still going to be really, really important? I I would be very surprised if the recess was cancelled. It's one of those things that it would only work if all the political parties agreed to it, because otherwise people would say, well, hang on a second, we've got our conference and you're cancelling it. I mean, I think it's not going to help, but I also think the new Prime Minister will probably welcome the chance to give a kind of big set-piece speech setting out where they're going. I think that you can see with Liz Truss not doing the Nick Robinson interview, I think that she will, if it is her, she will want to kind of control the narrative. And in some ways... Party conference is one of those moments when leaders hope that they, you know, their, their big speech is one of those things they hope they can control the narrative, get across what their what their message is. I, I, I would expect, though, that they will have done an emergency budget, or sorry, not, not an emergency budget, because they don't want it at the OBR. So, but, but I suspect that if this trust wins, she will do a, her fiscal event before that conference recess. Mm-hmm. And Isabel, speaking of Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister, looking ahead to next week, we're hearing now that actually the Queen will be receiving the new Prime Minister and Boris Johnson's res- resignation at Balmoral instead of Buckingham Palace. Why is that? Well, it's been announced this week to allow whoever uh, takes over from Boris Johnson as Prime Minister some certainty over their diary planning. Because earlier in uh, earlier in the summer, it was something that the Queen, that Buckingham Palace uh, had made clear would be taking place as usual at Buckingham Palace. Uh, But because the Queen has had to cancel various events over the spring and the summer due to uh, mobility issues, the decision has been taken that it would be better to plan that now rather than to have to make last minute changes that, that, that might be quite tricky in terms of getting to Balmoral. That's what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And James, late last night, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, passed away. End of an era? Yes. I mean, of the four people who were instrumental in the end of the Cold War, I think you can argue, you know, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Gorbachev, and, and arguably, you know, Pope John Paul II, they are all now dead. And that is obviously the end of an era. I think that it is worth remembering, though, that 
Mikhail Gorbachev's role in the end of the Cold War was very different from from that of, of the other three, or, because I don't think he intended the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of, of the Cold War when he set about his reforms, and, and you know, as, as the, the leader in the forthcoming issue of The Spectator sets out. But I think what is also true is that, you know, yes, there were some, some instances of, of violence in, in, in various Soviet republics as they tried to kind of control the situation, but ultimately he did not invade places in an attempt to stop either Warsaw Pact states leaving the, 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 the Soviet sphere of influence or the Baltic republics declaring independence. And so I also take a thing, we were talking about this earlier, Cindy, which is, I think there is a fascinating parallel here with what is going on with China, which is one of the fascinating things is how early the West realised, to use Margaret Thatcher's phrase, Mikhail Gorbachev was a man that they could do business with. It was when he was a member of the Politburo, the Agricultural Commissioner, that, that they that they grasped this. And I, when you think today about China, which is, I, and I think we are entering into a new period of great power competition with, with China you know, at, at the heart of it. And it, it, it is becoming a kind of a new Cold War in that I think you will see much more economic decoupling over the next few years between the, the West and China. But I'm struck by how little we know mm. about the Chinese system compared to how much we knew about the Soviet system, about the individual views of individual members of the Politburo. And I think if 30 years ago you'd attempted to walk from our office in the Spectator to Parliament, which is, which is about you know a, a seven-minute walk, you would have passed at least six people who could speak Russian. You would have passed criminologists, people who had real knowledge. There are so few people in the in the UK system who have that kind of knowledge of China. You know, it came out this week that only 14 people are learning Mandarin each year in, in the Foreign Office. And I, I think that, you know, precisely because of the size of a geopolitical threat that China represents, we need to understand it much, much better than we do. And when I think back to you know, the Cold War, all those Institute of Soviet Studies at, at British universities, we have none of that infrastructure in place for trying to understand China today. All we have is Chinese whispers, Cindy's amazing podcast. And that's all you need. No, I'm joking. You obviously need much, much more, but it's a good starting point. Thanks, Isabel. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. And do check out Chinese Whispers. If you'd like to see Coffee House Shots live, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash after Boris to get tickets to James Forsyth in conversation with Kate Andrews, Katie Balls, Fraser Nelson, and Andrew Neal talking about Britain after Boris. That will be on the 13th of September at the Emanuel Centre in Westminster. So to get tickets, spectator.co.uk forward slash after Boris.